just got back this week from being at a discipleship conference last week. I think we announced that. So Jeff, Todd, and I were in uh, Cartersville, Georgia this past week. And, and so um, that, was a, that was a good conference. It was, it was worth our time. And, and um, it's good. What, what we have in our fellowship is a good thing. And so that, that, was, a cool, that was a cool time. And, and, and we got some things that, that we learned. So, um, so praise the Lord from that. But we're back in the book of Nehemiah today. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 7. And we return to this study after a couple weeks away in order to focus on missions through our REACH conference. And, and while we're, we're moving on from REACH conference and, and, and a missions focus back into Nehemiah on Sunday mornings, I, I don't want you to move on from it personally. I want you to still take what God taught you during our REACH conference, and I want you to continue processing it and take those personal steps necessary to be more involved in the mission of God through this church. And, you know, and we encouraged you, man, if God is dealing with you, talk to someone, let, let someone know, and I encourage you to still do that if God's still been dealing with you through that. And what we're going to look at today in the book of Nehemiah I believe will will help give us all some motivation to do just that. Because today we're going to talk about how we can protect this house. That was a marketing slogan for Under Armour um, a number of years ago. And it's the title for our message this morning. I was going to play you the video, the the Protect Our House videos, but I decided not to. It's probably copyright laws or something. I shouldn't do that. But it's also related to the theme of chapter 7, I've kind of given you a theme for each chapter, and the theme for chapter 7 is, is just that, it's protection. And we're going to look this morning at some of the steps that Nehemiah took uh, to protect what they had built. Because if you remember back a few weeks ago, we're, we're coming off the completion of the wall there at the end of chapter 6, and, and we saw through that whole chapter, through chapter 6, how they fought through the fear of man. And opposition from, from Satan through the men that he was using there through Sanballat and, and Tobiah and those guys. And they remained faithful because they feared the Lord more than, they, more than they feared men. And they got the job done. And it was a job that God had burdened Nehemiah with back in chapter 1. And, and now he saw it completed all in 52 days. Quite an incredible accomplishment. But now we're going to see the focus of the book begin to shift. And it begins to to change some. And it moves from building to establishing. Moves from building to establishing. I told you before that Nehemiah breaks down very simply into two major sections. So chapters 1 through 6 deal with the rebuilding of the wall. And chapters 7 through 13 deal with the rebuilding or the establishing of the people. And in the second half of the book, the emphasis is on Nehemiah's leadership as governor. That's what what he's going to become as he's he's leading the people through that role, being the the governor. And, and, And he moves away from his role as project manager. The project's completed. And when it came to Nehemiah's burden to rebuild the people, what you need to know is a large part of it was because of his care. For the people. So, this is a natural shift. We saw that back in, in chapter 2, verse 10, if you remember. It says, And when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, heard of Nehemiah's burden and Nehemiah's plan to rebuild the city, look at, look at their response. It grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to what? Not rebuild the city, 
But there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. You see, the building project was never just about a wall. The wall had to be set in place, but that was so that the people could then be established. Established in community with each other and in service to the Lord. And what you need to understand is that both the rebuilding of the wall, the exterior surface, and the establishment of the people internally, they both have a protective element to them. One guards the outside, and the other guards the inside. You see, the walls and the gates were a defense system, obviously, to protect the city from outside invaders. But really, that just facilitated the deeper work that we're going to begin to see in developing the Jewish community inside the city. And when it comes to our Christian life and, and the life of this church and, and the life of your family, we absolutely need protection from the outside, but we also need protection and development on the inside as well. And that comes through relationships with each other, living in community with each other. The parallels and the pictures that we've seen throughout this book, they certainly apply here. And as we've learned throughout this study, you know, one of the themes that we've consistently seen is that the opposition is always at work. When it comes to your life, I, I probably, you know, you probably won't argue very hard with me on that. I, it probably doesn't take a lot of convincing to get you to know that the opposition is always at work. And just because the exterior wall is completed, the, the enemy doesn't stop. He doesn't stop fighting. And when I look at our church and when I look at, at the future of it, remember the theme of this study is, is building for the future. I want us to do all we can to protect what we have. And that begins with you and your home, and it extends here to this church. And, and this won't come as a surprise to many of you, but there is absolutely an assault on Christian homes and Christian churches today. In fact, the enemy has already infiltrated many of our homes and many of the pulpits across this country and this world. And just by way of example, this is just, I want to show you an example. I'm going to give you a, a couple quotes from a prominent evangelical pastor named Andy Stanley from a sermon that he preached on March 6th of this year, so, so three weeks ago. I think we have a, I think we have a picture of him. Um, so this is, this is Andy Stanley. And in, in the sermon he preached three weeks ago, th this is what he said. He said, when it comes to knowing if there is a God, and if there is a God, what God is like, and when it comes to trying to figure out who God likes, does it really come down to the Bible tells us so? And his conclusion to that question, I'll, I'll save a bunch of time, his conclusion was no. It doesn't come down to the Bible tells us so. In fact, he went on to say, I mean, we're modern people, rational people. Are we really expected to believe what we believe or believe anything based on a collection of ancient manuscripts written by potentially dozens of men only who didn't even know each other over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years in a world without science in the way that we think of modern science and in a world where everybody believed in the gods or some kind of God? I mean, let's just be honest, all right? Weren't they just making stuff up? I mean, weren't they just guessing? 
And then, in, in an even more definitive statement, he wraps up, this was the introduction to his sermon, and he wraps up the introduction with this statement. He says, the Christian faith does not rise and fall based on the accuracy or inerrancy of 66 ancient documents that we call the books of the Bible. And, and listen, I, I, I point that out to you, or I, or I don't point it out to make any particular statement about Andy Stanley himself per se. I use him as an example because he is certainly one of the de facto leaders of the evangelical movement today. He pastors one of the largest evangelical churches in America. At least he did pre-COVID. I don't even know if they're back or not. I'm not sure. Um, but the most recent kind of weekly attendance figures you can get, his church, multiple campuses, that have a weekly attendance of about 40,000. And so that's, you know, 600 or, or 60 times, you know, what we have here. And, and he's certainly not alone in those thoughts, in, in those teachings. In fact, he's, he likely holds the majority position in, in, the, in the, the Christian church today. Now, some guys aren't willing to admit it as overtly as he is. But it's absolutely what they believe. And the question I want to ask us this morning is do you think we are immune to that? This church has been around 164 years, as of three weeks ago, as of March 8th. 164 years. And I can't speak, certainly, for those early years. But for most of us, this church has stood on the authority of the Bible, has stood on, God, on good doctrine our entire lives. But will it still when we are gone? If the Lord tarries, and, and I don't think he will, I, don't, I can't imagine how. It just seems become, becoming more and more clear every day that he won't. But if he does, will our children, will, will their children, will those coming behind us, will they carry on the torch? And the, the answer is I don't know if we don't protect this house. That obviously applies to your home as well. If, if you don't prioritize the things of the Lord, do you honestly think that your kids will? I mean, you can lie to yourself all you want, but the truth is, what history shows, is they probably won't. Or at least most of them won't. Now, I know, some will. And praise the Lord for that. But if so, if, if you don't prioritize the Lord, but they do, it will be in spite of you, not because of you. But will there be enough? And if we don't take steps to protect this house, we are at risk. And Nehemiah, underst we, he, Nehemiah understood this concept, and I, and I say we're at risk because this is prevalent. We live inside this bubble of First Baptist Church. And it's good preaching and it's good doctrine. That's the history. And man, praise the Lord. But that's not the rest of the world. It's not the rest of this country. The, the, the predominant position is what you see in, in, in churches like that. And like I said, Nehemiah understood this with respect to the city of Jerusalem. And he knew that the building the wall wasn't enough. Because if so, this book would be over. If, if the building the wall was the goal... The book would be over, but we have seven more chapters to go. 
And in those chapters, we are going to see that investment in the people. And that's what we're, we're going to begin to look through today as we study chapter 7. And we're going, to, we're going to bite off the entire chapter today. It's actually the longest chapter in the book of Nehemiah. It was 73 verses. But most of them, if you've, if you've looked at it, uh, as you're going to see, most of them just include the registry of the people and the families who returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. So verses 7 through 63 are just a list of names and families. So we won't read most of that section. Uh, you're welcome. But, but let's read verses 1 through 6 to set the context, and then we'll, we'll pray and get into our study on how we can protect this house. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass, when the wall was built, and I had set up the doors, and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed, that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot. And while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them, and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch and every one to be over against his house. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not builded. And my God put into mine heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a registry of the genealogy of them which came up at the first and found written therein. These are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those that had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and came again to Jerusalem and to Judah, every one and to his city. All right, let's pray and then let's see what God has for us um, in, in, in this long, long chapter. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we just thank you for the, the, the tradition of, at this church of, of standing on it of standing on your word and believing it and, and preaching it. And, and so, Lord, we pray that that, that continues. And, and so, Lord, I pray that, that you use today to motivate us to continue what, what has gone on before us. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that, that, that you motivate our hearts and that you change our hearts where we need to be able to, where we need to look at things differently. And, and Lord, I know that we're all at different spots in here, but, Lord, I know your word is is able to, to hit all of us where we're at. So I pray that it does just that. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it's honoring and that it's glorifying to you, Lord. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we've already noted, um, as we just read, we're, we're at, a, at an exciting time in, in Israel's history. And, and for Nehemiah and the workers at Jerusalem, the wall was built, the doors were set. And so they had accomplished that initial task. But... Again, as we've noted, Nehemiah was aware that, that the, the work wasn't done. And he knew that if, 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 if they were going to be able to establish the people and protect the, the community that they had, that there was more work to do. And there are three areas that Nehemiah emphasizes in this chapter involving the people, involving dealing with people. And these three areas, I believe, give us some great insight into how we can protect what we have and what's been built here and, and in our homes. And, and these are the elements of protection that we find in our homes, in our lives, and in this church. And the first element of protection that we're going to see this morning is this. is complete protection comes from understanding structured leadership. Complete protection comes from understanding structured leadership. I want you to notice 
at the very first thing that Nehemiah does after the completion of the wall and the setting up of the doors is that he appoints appoints porters, singers, and Levites, and he puts his brother and then another guy in charge of Jerusalem. What he does is structure and sets up the leadership of the city. Look back again at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now it came to pass when the wall was built, and I had set up the doors, and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed, that I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. And, and listen, this is just so important. Because when it comes to maintaining biblical purity and living according to biblical principles, both in your home and in the church, the right leadership is key. And the structure of that leadership is key as well. And we see the structure break into three areas. These are the the types of leaders that we need if we're going to protect this house. And it's the type of leader you need to be if you're going to protect your house. And first, here's what we see. The right leaders will watch. The right leaders will watch. And we see this from the porters that he started with in verse 1. The porters were the gatekeepers or the watchmen. Look down at verses 3 and 4 because Nehemiah explains their job further there. He says, And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot. And while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch and every one to be over against his house. You see, there's watches at the gates, but the people were supposed to watch their house as well. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein. There hadn't been that many people come back. And the houses were not built. They were were still working on the construction inside the city. And so what you, what you get out of this is that part of protecting is watching. And getting back to our introduction, this gets to being very careful about what we allow into our city, so to speak, and into our homes, and into our church. And we won't take the time to go there, but Ezekiel 33 talks about the role of watchmen in some detail. And the sad truth is the church in general has allowed a lot of stuff in that has no business being there. And it's because the porters, the watchmen, haven't been doing their jobs. And some leaders think that to build a church, you can't stay true to the Word of God. And that you have to shift and adjust and accommodate to culture and science or whatever it was that Andy Stanley was talking about. And and unfortunately, you can build a church numerically that way, but not one that glorifies the Lord. God wants it done his way. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. And Paul expressed this this sentiment of needing watchmen as leaders when he was talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. And he gave them the following instruction in verses 28 through 31. It will be familiar to many of you. Paul tells these guys, these elders, he said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. 
For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Look what he says in verse 31. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. He told them, listen, there's an assault on the church and people are coming and your job is to watch. Your job is to, 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 to know what's happening and not let them in. Well, how do you do that? I mean, how, how do you... How do you do this job of being a watchman and, and being careful and being protective? How does a leader know how to watch and what to watch for? And the answer is found in verse 3 of Nehemiah chapter 7. You let the sun lead you. You follow the light. Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 3, And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Israel be opened until the sun be hot. You see, the porters weren't to let anybody through the gates while it was dark. They needed the sun to be able to see and to be able to discern, to discern the situation. And we know from Malachi 4.2 that the Lord Jesus Christ is the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness. But unto you that fear my name shall the sun of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. We know from John 1.1 that he is the word. And according to you know, one of the most popular verses in the Bible, Psalm 119.105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Or, or Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 1.19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. He's, he's talking about the word of God. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. So that all means that the watchmen need to know God's word and, and follow God's word. They shouldn't lead according to their own opinions or what the world tells them about leadership. They are to use the word of God solely and point people to that. And protect their house through it, through God's word, because it is enough that is fully sufficient and it lights the way. Psalm 119, verse 130 The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. And praise the Lord, because I'm one of the simple. And, and, and laugh all you want, but I mean it. That's the truth. And the word of God gives light. And it gives understanding to me. And I praise him for that. So the right leaders will watch. And they do that through God's word. But then second, the right leaders will worship. Because who did not Nehemiah set in place after the porters? We see two groups. We see the singers and the Levites. Look at verse 1 again. Now it came to pass when the wall was built and I set up the doors. And the porters and the singers... And the Levites were appointed. And so we have two roles here. We have singers and Levites, and these two roles go hand in hand, and they're both related to true worship of God. So not only do the singers and the Levites worship themselves, they lead others into worship with them. And, and the singers, guess what they did? They sang. I know, it's, it's pretty cool stuff, huh? They were the praise leaders, 
of the day. And it's interesting that when you look through the registry later in this chapter, you find them again in verse 44. Nehemiah 7, 44 says, The singers, the children of Asaph, 148. And, and their great ancestor was the Levite singer Asaph. And you might know him because he wrote some of the Psalms. He particularly, he wrote Psalm 73, 73 through 83. And he wrote Psalm 50. And he lived well before this group that came back from Babylon, but he, he was one of David's key leaders as a song leader. First Chronicles 16, 7 says, Then on that day David delivered first his psalm to thank the Lord under the hand of Asaph and to his brethren because they were going to sing and lead the congregation in the song that David had written. And they were even partners in writing much of the music that Israel would sing for many years. Second Chronicles 29, 30. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. And I point this out because I want you to understand the importance of singing in the worship of the Lord. Wayne talked about it even as, as he was starting our praise set this morning. And we've talked a lot about worship around here lately, and, and we've emphasized that, that worship, true worship, according to the Bible, isn't just singing, right? And we go back to that first mention in, G in Genesis 22 and, and how it's related to sacrifice, and that's absolutely true. But, but I do want to make sure that, that we don't minimize what singing to the Lord means to him. It absolutely is a part of worship. It's not the, the total, it's not the totality of worship. But it's absolutely part of worship. Psalm 66, 4 says, All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee, and they shall sing to thy name. Selah. And listen, this is all throughout the Bible. The reason we sing in church today is because it is an integral part of the worship system that God set up for us to follow. Having that sort of heart, one that is willing to praise the Lord verbally, even through difficult times, that is evidence of and part of walking in the Spirit. Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 19 says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What's that look like? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3, 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So praising the Lord through song is important. What we do in those first 20 minutes of, of every Sunday, they're not a waste of time. And you shouldn't view them that way. It's your opportunity to express your appreciation to the Lord. And when you take it that way and you view it that way, you'll be amazed at how it sets your heart to hear the, the preaching of the Word of God. Because that's how God set it up. But again, there is a larger aspect to worship. It's not only singing. And the, and the right leaders of, of homes and churches, they bring those homes and they bring those churches to a point of full worship because they understand that worship is the point of life. And that's where the Levites came in. The Levites were the priests, 
And they were the ones that offered the sacrifices. Right? We just talked about the first mention of worship in Genesis 22. What's it connect with? It connects with sacrifice. And, and make no mistake about it. When, when Nehemiah set up Jerusalem and went to protect the exterior walls and to develop the people inside, he absolutely and he, he had worship in mind. This is why he set up the porters, why he set up the singers, and why he set up the watchmen. He, he set them up in, the, in that order first. Because when, when it came to Jerusalem, worship is a key component. That city was made for worship. That was its purpose. Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through 4, talks specifically about the purpose of Jerusalem. And that is a prophetic passage that points to Jerusalem in the, in the millennium. But it was true historically as well. And those verses say, for Zion's sake... I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness. So this is talking about Jerusalem. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem. In the hand of thy God, and thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hezbollah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. See, the, Jerusalem was, was meant to be that royal diadem that pointed everyone to Jesus. Jesus even pointed the Samaritan woman to that end. When she was recounting part of, of, of their conversation, she said this in John 4.20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say, Jesus, here's what you say, that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. You see, God designed Jerusalem to be a place of worship, and it pointed people to him. It pointed people to God in, in the Old Testament. and In the millennium, it's, it's going to point people to the King of Kings. And that's how God designed it. And guess what? That's how he designed us. He designed our lives, our homes, and this church to all be places of worship as well. Listen, I don't, I don't know what you think about your life this morning and the meaning of, of your life and the purpose of your life. But the Bible states very clearly that, that you and I were created for God. He created you to serve him and, and for his own pleasure. I, I, my favorite, you could go to many verses. My favorite one in, in this context is Revelation 4.11. It says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure, they are and were created. You see, we do not have to guess why we were created. The Bible tells us. We were created for God's pleasure. And according to the beginning of that verse, we were created to worship him. Just like Jerusalem. So we need to protect that. We need to be about that. Is your life, is your home, is this church a place of worship? It's our job to make them so. That's something we need to protect. But there's one more leadership trait that we see in, the, in these first few verses of Nehemiah chapter 7 that will enable us to protect our house, and that is the right leaders are worthy. 
The right leaders are worthy. And, and here's what I mean by that. There are a couple of characteristics that we see in the leaders that Nehemiah appoints. And not surprisingly, it's the same characteristics we talked about over and over and over again in chapter 6 and even some before that. Look back at verse 2. And I gave my brother Hananiah, Hananiah and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God above many. And, and like I said, we've already talked about the importance of this at length. But this is the key to the type of man and woman that God is looking for to build and to, and to protect. And it is someone that is faithful and it's someone that fears the Lord. And certainly fears the Lord more than they fear men. You see, Nehemiah delegated authority to the right men. And one happened to be his brother, but he didn't promote him because he was his brother. It was because of his character. And we all should be men and women of character, faithful to what God has called us to do and, and fearful of God, not fearing man. Listen, if you fear man more than you fear the Lord, then you're not qualified for what God has for you. And from a church perspective, this is how we pick leaders. They're proven to be faithful and to fear the Lord. God never promotes men until they have been proven in those things. And that's required of deacons, for example. 1 Timothy 3.10, in the context of deacons, Paul says, and, and let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. And when it comes to Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, this was most likely the same brother that brought him the message of Jerusalem uh, in, in chapter 1. And listen, he was faithful to that. He told the truth. He brought the right message. And, and, and he's obviously still being faithful to all that God was having him to do and all that God was having him to say. He, he told the truth, and that's the key. In faithfulness to the Lord, you're willing to tell the truth. You're willing to say what this book says. And good, bad, and ugly. And you let the chips fall where they may. And you just stick to the book. And that, that's all we got. But what more do we need? We don't need anything else. We have it all right here. To live according to how God has us to live. To be faithful to that. To be faithful to him by being faithful to this book. And, and, and fearing him in the process. But then next, as we move through chapter 7, we get to the registry of the people that return from Babylon, that return to Jerusalem from Babylon. And Nehemiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he takes the time to list everyone in their families that returned. As did Ezra, by the way, in Ezra chapter 2. And there's a very similar list, and we see why. They're very similar list when we read Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. Those verses say, My God put into my heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of them which came up at the first, right, with Ezra, and found written therein. These are the children of the province that went up 
into the captivity of those that had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and came again to Jerusalem and to Judah, everyone to a city. So we told you in the introduction of this book, like Nehemiah, kind of the third group. You had a group with Ezra, you had a group with Zerubbabel, and, and those happened a, a few years before Nehemiah's group. And so what's going on here is God put it in Nehemiah's heart to establish a registry, right, a record of the Jews that had returned from captivity in Babylon. And he found one that Ezra had put together. And so he used that. That's what it says. I found a registry of the genealogy of them that came up at the first. And so he found one that Ezra had put together, and he used that as his basis. And again, you find that in Ezra chapter 2. And if you compare the two lists, there are a few differences. Not many, but there are, there are a few differences uh, in the two registries. But that just means that somebody had made some adjustments in the list at some point in time. Ezra put together his list as they were leaving Babylon. And Nehemiah found it in Jerusalem many years later. So likely not everyone made it. or They just made some edits after they got there. The few discrepancies between the two lists are easily explained by the space and time between Ezra putting it together and Nehemiah finding it. But here is the point that, I, uh, that I'm making here. Nehemiah wanted to make a registry. And he started with the first group that came back to Jerusalem, even years before he did. And when it comes to protecting our house and the, the future of our house, that shows that complete protection comes from understanding spiritual legacy. It comes from understanding spiritual legacy. You see, it, it doesn't take long if you're reading your Bible, even if you start in Genesis, it doesn't take long to understand that God is very interested in people and families and histories through genealogies. He cares about them. He cares about genealogies. He cares about legacies. In fact, there's much more detail given to names and children and so-and-so begat so-and-so than there is to things like the creation, for example. Right? With respect to the creation, we basically have one chapter. There are many chapters in your Bible devoted to lists of people, just like we see in Nehemiah chapter 7. And this is because people and children and legacies mean something to God. I've told you this before, but God keeps records. In Nehemiah chapter 3, we have the record of the workers. God made sure to preserve those names and some 2,500 years after the work was conducted, we're still reading those names today. How amazing is that? He cares about people. He cares about relationships. He cares about his work and his plan continuing down through the generations because that is always in question. The truth is we are always only one generation away from our homes and our church believing exactly what Andy Stanley does. Or even worse, Andy Stanley's father is Charles Stanley. And we would agree with most of what he taught. The, 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 the dirty little secret in this passage in, 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 with Israel's history is Nehemiah was doing this work to, to protect what God was doing. And you know, this was happening around 444, 445 BC. Not some 40 years later. Silence from God. Because Israel had abandoned him. 
the next generation didn't continue the work. So, so what are your kids and my kids going to believe about the Bible when, when they are 30, 40, 50? What will they be passing down to our grandkids? You and I have a great deal of influence over that. And it's important that we don't drop the ball. Because if we, have, if we want to protect this house, we have to understand the spiritual legacies are important. The next generation won't just follow the Lord automatically. we got to teach them. We need to make disciples and live out 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Right? So you have the four generations there. You have Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and others, others also. you got those four generations of, being, of passing down what we have in this precious word of God. And that is our job, to pass down what we've been given. Like I said, 164 years, what a legacy we have at this church. It's our responsibility to keep it going. And it's not just through our physical children and, and grandchildren. It, of course, relates to our spiritual children as well. We are talking about a spiritual legacy. So with that in mind, let me ask you a question. Again, in the context of protecting this house and the future of this house, preserving the future. And here is the question. Who is here this morning because of you? Who is here this morning because of you? How many people have you led to the Lord and introduced into this fellowship? Look around the room. Look around. Do you have a spiritual legacy here? 164 years. And it's lasted that long because our Christian brothers and sisters before us participated in the work of the Lord. And they evangelized and they discipled and they passed on the spiritual DNA that was put in them. And that matters. Spiritual DNA, what we have and what we believe, it matters. And you see that here in Nehemiah chapter 7. Look down at verse 63. And of the priests, the children of Abiah, the children of Kaz, the children of Barzillai, which took one of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, to wife, and was called after their name, these sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy. But look at this. But it was not found. Therefore were they, as polluted, put from the priesthood. This was recorded in the book of Ezra 2. It's recorded in both places. And this is because spiritual DNA is important. You see, the priest had to be able to prove that they were of the right lineage. Right? So everybody is in captivity. Captivity for 70 years. Some are starting to come back. And the priest had to be able to prove that they were of the right lineage, that they had the right DNA. Because in the Old T Testament, you didn't get to just decide that you wanted to be a priest. That there was no preschool that you could attend after you graduated high school. No, you had to be born a priest. You had to be born of the tribe of Levi. 
Under the law, the priesthood, starting with Aaron, was a Levitical priesthood. And there's a beautiful picture in that. Because in the New Testament, one of the doctrines that we believe in strongly is the priesthood of the believer. And that just means in, the New, in New Testament biblical Christianity, everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ is a priest. We can do what those priests of the Old Testament did. We have direct access to God. Right? There's no mediator that has to come between us like, like the priest did uh, in, in the Old Testament. Right? That's 1 Timothy 2.5. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And if we're saved, we're in Christ. We have direct access to him. Right? The Levites didn't have an inheritance in their land. We don't have an inheritance in this world. Our inheritance is, is in, the, in the world to come. We don't live for this world. We live for that. It, it, it means that you're qualified to offer offerings to God. And as priests, we have direct access to him because we're in him. And we can have all, all that picture of those Old Testament priests and what they did. That's who we are. We're qualified to offer the offerings to God. And how do you get that way? By being born again. The new birth, the spiritual birth, 1 Peter 1.23 says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And because of that, because of this spiritual birth, when we accept Christ as our Savior, we become a son of God, God has given us direct access to him by being born again, and that is the picture being portrayed here in Nehemiah chapter 7. They were trying to make sure they knew who the priests were and weren't. Some of the lines have been polluted, and they were put out. They were put out of the priesthood. And this is a biblical principle even found in the New Testament, that they needed to have record of who they were. So let me show you an example. 1 Corinthians 16.3 says, or um, Paul was talking about a special offering. right? So he's talking about a special offering that he had asked the churches in Galatia to raise for the believers in Jerusalem who had been suffering. And look at what he says about the process of delivery of this offering. 1 Corinthians 16.3. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, then will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. So did you catch that? The guys delivering the money needed to have a letter to prove they were who they said they were. Paul didn't know them. So they needed a letter from the church to vouch for them. This by the way, is the origin of a church letter. So when we take someone into membership, sometimes they were a member of another church, and, and you might have heard the term the transfer by letter, right? We need another church to vouch for them, to say they that they believe what, what they say they believe. This is the origin of that. Now, it's all mostly done over email today, and, but it does have biblical roots. But back to our point, there is a biblical principle of there being a certification that you are who you claim to be. Because we have false professors of Jesus Christ even today. And you need to know that God knows. 2 Timothy 2.19 says God knows who are his. There's a letter of certification, so to speak, for you to prove that you are who you say you are. See, God has a record of those who are his. He keeps a record you remember when the disciples came to Jesus? They were all excited about this preaching tour that they had been sent on. 
and devils were being cast out and people were being healed and they come back to Jesus in their excitement. Look at what the Lord said to them when they came back and they were talking about all that was happening. Luke chapter 10 verse 20. Jesus said, Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So let me ask you, is yours? Is your name written in heaven? Is your name in the book of life? It is if you have been born again. But if you haven't been born again, then it isn't. God knows who are his. And if you aren't his, Revelation 20:15 says, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, the consequences are dire. Eternity's a long time. You shouldn't overlook forever. And listen, just because your name might be written on our church roll, that won't get you into heaven. That doesn't matter. God's list is the only one that matters. Are you on it? And if you are on that list, are you passing down your DNA to others? Because spiritual legacies and genealogies matter. And if we don't understand that, then we won't pass down the spiritual DNA that we have. And then this house is at risk. But there's one more area of protection that Nehemiah discusses at the, at the end of this chapter. And, and this gives us our last element of protection. And that is complete protection comes from understanding sincere liberality. Sincere liberality. And by sincere liberality, I mean joyful giving. We already saw the, the, the word liberality used in the context of giving in, in 1 Corinthians 16.3. Let me show you another example. 2 Corinthians 8.2. It says how that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under riches of their liberality. And when you work your way through Nehemiah chapter 7, starting in verse 66, Nehemiah begins to summarize all the numbers, right? So he counts all the people that came back, and so he's summarizing all the numbers, and he includes the numbers related to giving to the project. So God even keeps giving records. Look at verse 70. And some of the chief of the fathers gave under the work. The, the, the Tershatha, that's the governor, gave to the treasurer a thousand drams of gold, 50 basins, 530 priest garments. And some of the chief of the fathers gave to the treasurer of the work 20,000 drams of gold and 2,200 pounds of silver. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 drams of gold and 2,000 pounds of silver and threescore and seven priest garments. You see, they all gave. And the truth is, if, if we're going to protect this house and preserve it for future generations and leave them with the right legacy and the right Bible, it takes all of us giving of our time, talents, and treasure. And, and I want to be very true, careful and true to God's word here. It starts with the leaders. That's what verse 70 is. It starts with the chief. It starts with the governor. It starts with the leaders. That's a must. 
for, for all of us in any type of leadership level, we need to be givers, joyful givers. But it includes everyone. And the rest, the, and that, verse 72, and that which the rest of the people gave. It includes everyone. The people of Israel gave to something that was bigger than them. Because they believed in it so much. And one of the reasons why this church is still around after all these years and still believing and teaching the Bible is because those that have gone before us understood this, that, this point as well. We meet in this building because previous generations sacrificed and gave to the work of the Lord in this place. But listen, I, I, I praise the Lord because most of you know it too. Most of you are awesome in your giving, but it's a question that we should always be asking ourselves. Are we being faithful in this area? It matters for our children, both physical and spiritual. And listen, you might wonder, how can I give cheerfully? I mean, things are tough. Inflation's crazy. My dollar doesn't go near as far as it used to. And it's tough to give. And I get it. But I, but I want you to think about it this way. This is how your liberality can be sincere. This is how your giving can be cheerful. Think about this. Everyone who comes through those doors and gets saved through a service or one of the ministries of this church was something you paid for. There are people that connect with us and find our church through our website that you paid for. People have met with pastors and received counseling and received training to start churches in Hungary and Columbus, for example, that you paid for and are still paying for. Others have come and, and received spiritual healing from the Lord while their babies were comfortable in newly renovated nurseries that you paid for. Folks have been given thousands of Bibles all over the world that you have paid for. Because even though you might not know these people, you have loved them through your liberality and giving. Your money goes to getting people across the country and across the entire world free access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, that should give you great cheer. What else are you doing with your money that is better than funding people going to heaven? Funding people learning their Bible so that their lives and the lives of their families are forever changed. And of course, I'm not saying that we're buying people into heaven or, or buying people into learning their Bible. That's not possible. But our money that goes to our ministries and our missionaries makes a real difference in the lives of people. And that is awesome. That is awesome. And that's part of the future. If all of us decide to quit giving today, this church ends. You want to protect this house. Give to what God is doing. And I believe that you can do it cheerfully because of, of the, just what happens, the fruit of this church 
Just getting people the gospel, getting Bibles in the hands of people that we pay for. What a privilege that is. It's all God's money anyways. But in the end, what a joy it is and what a privilege it is to be in a position to give it back to the Lord. And in doing so, protecting this house and setting it up to glorify the Lord through future generations if he somehow, again, I don't know how, but if he somehow decides that Terry is coming. But in order to really do that, to protect what we have, we need to understand the importance of structured leadership. The lead according to God's word that, that will watch, that will worship, and that, that are worthy, that are faithful and that fear the Lord. And then understand spiritual legacy and taking what we've been giving, the, the spiritual DNA that we have, and passing that on, evangelizing, discipling, and putting that in the next generation, and then understanding sincere liberality and giving to the Lord and what it really means. And what a privilege it really is. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as you're settling your hearts and minds now, I want you to consider all that God has shown you through his word this morning. And, and while doing so, if there's something that he's impressing upon your heart that you need to change, will you do that? Will, will, you, will you come down and put yourself at this altar that is just a picture of, of the sacrifice, of sacrificing of your life to the Lord. You don't have to do that, though. You can do it in your pew. If you, if, if you don't feel comfortable and you just want to pray in your pew, whatever. If God is dealing with you this morning, will you, will you get it right with him? We're going to close out this service singing in worship to the Lord. We're going to sing a, a song about the one and only holy God. And assuming that's true, which I know it is, doesn't he deserve our best? As a holy God, doesn't he deserve our all? And so will you make that your prayer this morning and turning your attention away from this world and from the distractions surrounding it and focusing your heart on him? And if you don't know the Lord is your Savior this morning, if you're not sure that your name is written in heaven in the book of life that we talked about earlier, I want you to know that we can show you how to get it written therein. And if you don't know, if you aren't sure of your salvation, can I beg you to get that settled this morning? Because if you aren't saved, the Bible says you're destined to spend an eternity in hell, separated from Almighty God. It's being cast into that lake of fire that we read about in Revelation 20, 15. But the good news is Jesus made a way. And he made a way by dying for our sins, by living that perfect life, dying on the cross, raising again the third day according to the Scriptures. And when we place our faith in that, in the finished work of Christ, we can be saved. You just have to make it personal. He died for the sins of the world, but you have to accept it as your own. But you can do that today. And if you don't know how, just come forward. We'll, we would love to show you how. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for just the, the, the truth that it contains. And, and, Lord, I just pray that you use it in our heart, you use it in our life. Um, Lord, we are all, again, in different spots, and, and, and yet your word touches all of them. And so, Lord, I pray that we, even through, just through your word today, are molded more into your image, and we see what the things we need to change, and, Lord, we take the steps to do it. Lord, I pray that you're honored through our life. I pray that you're honored through our worship. 